Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. It's time for part two of our look back at Kingdom Come. It's uh, 20 years since the Elseworlds story finally appeared on the newsstands back in 1996. It had a huge impact. Of course it did. Uh, it was made by uh, Alex Ross and Mark Wade. We've got Alex Ross here for part two of our look back at Kingdom Come. Uh, Alex, as Mark pointed out in part one, was really the guy that had the genesis of the idea coming off of his, of his success with uh, Marvel's, at Marvel Comics, with him and Kurt Busiek. Um, Alex talks about how uh, Mark was chosen to be the writer, their collaboration from Alex's point of view. We, in some ways, cover some of the same territory as we did with Mark. And uh, again, uh, see if there's any contrast in terms of how Alex remembers it. But uh, we talk about what it takes to make a hero, which really was the heart of uh, the story of Kingdom Come. And, uh, man, it's just great that uh, Alex, uh, you know, decided to come on and um, share his thoughts because uh, he doesn't do a lot of these. And it's terrific that, uh, you know, he and uh, Sal Abinati, his uh, his art dealer, thick enough of me that, uh, they, you know, Alex was willing to come back and uh, share his feelings. Uh, we also get into uh, some of the stuff that uh, Alex is doing today. He gave us more than a half hour like Mark Wade, which is great. Um, and uh, he's got some really interesting projects going on. Of course, you've been seeing his uh, covers for Marvel lately, and we talk about that. But uh, also two really interesting licensing deals that uh, are just underway. He has been doing a, an amazing portfolio for the Beatles and uh, is working not only with the Living Beatles, uh, Ringo Starr and Paul McCartney, but the estates of John Lennon and George Harrison as well. And uh, we talk about that. And also just getting started on doing a licensing deal with Universal Pictures with the classic monsters from Universal. Really, really interesting stuff. So uh, it, it's really great to uh, get an opportunity again to speak with Alex Ross on today's Word Balloon, and I'm really happy to share it with you. It's all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your support. It really means a lot, and uh, you, you make a difference in Word Balloon. You truly do. If you want to subscribe to Word Balloon, it's an option. It's not necessary. Word Balloon is free. It will always be free. But if you want to help the cause out, go to wordballoon.com. Check out my uh, Patreon ad over there. And uh, it will lead you to a couple videos. And uh, if you can help the cause, and even if you could spare a dollar a month, it would be great. I mean, I, I really think Word Balloon uh, provides several hours of entertainment every month, sometimes 10, even a dozen hours sometimes. And uh, I'll tell you, I think you get a lot more out of a 90-minute a or an hour-long conversation with one of my creator uh, interviews than you do in a 20-page in a comic book these days. So, you know, again, if you can spare a dollar a month, that would be terrific. And uh, you really would be helping me out. Thank you very much, League of Word Balloon listeners. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Tremendous deals are happening right now at InStock Trades on things like, how about this Vertigo series from Rob Williams and Michael Dowling, Unfollow. Really interesting stuff. You know, Vertigo is going through changes, and sometimes uh, people haven't been paying attention to some of the great product that uh, Vertigo's been putting out. Unfollow is a perfect example of that. You can get Volume 1 for 50% off. It's just $7.49. You can get the Fables Deluxe Edition Hardcover Volume 12 from Bill Willingham and Mark Buckingham and Steve Lealoa. Uh Great stories from uh, issues uh, 101 to 113. 50% off. It's just $14.00. And 99 cents. You can get Mighty Thor, the premier hardcover, uh, featuring, of course, Jane Foster as Thor, Jason Aaron, and Russell Dowderman. Uh, pretty neat stuff. Uh, we're looking at In Her Veins, Volume 1, 
50% off, just $12.49. You can get the Guardians of the Galaxy by Abnett and Lanning Omnibus. Unbelievable stuff in uh, this book. Uh, it co collects the 2008 series, all 25 issues, the Thanos Imperative Ignition, one through six, and uh, other uh, material as well. It's 45% uh, off, just $55 at InStockTrades.com. Uh, lots more as well. We'll get into that in uh, the second half of the show. But uh, do yourself a favor. Go to InStockTrades.com and uh, pick up some of these great books. Before we get going, I wanted to point out one of the reasons why um, Alex and Mark did this, uh, these interviews is um, they're coming to Skokie, suburban Chicago, uh, on Saturday to Oya oh yeah Comics, Art and Franco's store. And it's going to be great, and I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I do have to let people know, though, that they did kind of cap the line. So um, there's a possibility, if you haven't already prearranged and bought um, a Kingdom Come new uh, hardcover edition at In Stock Trades, it kind of guaranteed your place in line. Um, the signing is only going to be for three hours. It's from Saturday from 2 until 5 o'clock. The store is going to be open at 8 o'clock in the morning, and it will close at 12.30. From 12.30 to 2, the store will be closed, and they're going to set up for the signing itself. And uh, depending on how quickly the line will go, um, you know, the, the people that are getting, you know, the, the first crack at getting the signatures are going to be those people that already pre-bought uh, the, the uh, copies of Kingdom Come. But I think they might be out. So you might want to call the store if you were thinking about going. Um, they are going to have a second line for the people that didn't, you know, buy the books. But it really is kind of a crapshoot. And, you know, honestly, the, the last thing they want to do is disappoint anybody that shows up. But, um, you know, the guys are on a tight schedule. Um, it really was prearranged that and this was the way that they could do it. The other thing, too, is if you already are in line. Um, Alex is not going to be doing any uh, sketches. It really is just signatures only uh, for Wade and Alex. And they are asking that you limit it to just five pieces, which I think is pretty reasonable. You know, so um, just wanted to throw that out there. I got more information since the uh, Wade episode, and I wanted to share that with you. But uh, before we dive into the conversation with Alex, uh, we should probably uh, recap for people who don't know the story of Kingdom Come. Uh, young heroes seem to be acting without any code of ethics and uh, look a lot like uh, the image uh, group of heroes that came in the early 90s, certainly reflective of the times, given that uh, this story was written in 1996. Superman is shamed into retirement. It's been 10 years. Uh, Lois Lane is killed, and Superman seems kind of uh, unable to uh, really get rid of the Joker, who killed Lois, in the eyes of the public. And uh, there's a new hero named Magog, who kills the Joker, kind of Lee Harvey Oswald style, before the Joker is able to get trial. That's what sh sends Superman into retirement. Batman can't fight uh, crime hand-to-hand -hand anymore because of those years of all those battles. They've finally taken their toll on his body. But he controls Gotham City with a lot of these, like, bat-robot drones that are sent out uh, that are <laughs> gigantic and seem very effective of uh, doing the job of keeping Gotham City clean. Wonder Woman responds to a crisis that happens in the Midwest and reaches out to uh, Clark back on the farm to come out of retirement and set things right and set the example of what heroes should be. Superman uh, reorganizes the Justice League. It's made up of a few old-time heroes, but really a lot of them, too, are the grown-up sidekicks, the Teen Titans, kind of now in a middle-aged sort of way because they've got grown-up children of their own. And some of their uh, third-generation heroes do follow the lead of Superman and their parents and are fighting on the side of good. 
Batman also uh, comes up with a group of younger heroes that are willing to follow him, and his group is called the Outsiders. It also seems like a group of supervillains led by Lex Luthor out there called the Mankind Liberation Front. And of all people to join uh, the MLF, uh, it seems like Captain Marvel is uh, working as Luthor's, uh, you know, kind of his enforcer. Very weird stuff going on in Kingdom Come, and that's kind of the opening. Uh, of course, uh, Norman McKay, the uh, minister, uh, gets a, a prophetic message from Wesley Dobbs, the Sandman, that the end of times is coming, and it is uh, his visions are wrapped in a lot of uh, biblical text about the end of times, hence the title Kingdom Come. And, uh, you know, basically we get uh, Norman, uh, guided by the specter, watching uh, the moves of these superheroes, and are they going to prevent the apocalypse, or are they going to start it? That's the question that Norman McKay faces, the specter, Superman, and all the players in Kingdom Come. A great story from Mark Wade, and of course, the fine painter that gave us the story visually and really had the, uh, the seed of the idea, Alex Ross. Let's find out how Alex Ross came up with the idea of Kingdom Come, his thoughts on uh, the story, and uh, really the impact it had on his career, and also a lot of stuff of what he's doing now. Alex Ross joins us after, uh, man, eight years, but he's back on Word Balloon. Really happy to welcome Alex Ross back to Word Balloon. This is your third Word Balloon, Alex. I know that, again, you do a lot of interviews, and I don't expect you to remember that, but for me, it's always an honor and privilege to have you back, so welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. Congratulations on the 20th anniversary of Kingdom Come. Uh, yes. <laughs> that's kind of the, the celebratory event that we're, that you know is uh, providing us with this interview, and also I talked to Mark Wade earlier. Uh, you guys are going to be in Skokie, Illinois, at Aya Comics. And uh, a great signing. And I was asking Mark earlier, this is, you know, first time you guys have gotten together to do a Kingdom Come signing, maybe since the book came out? Boy, yeah, I guess that's correct. And, I mean, even for just uh, being two people in the business, I haven't seen Mark in, I would say, at least a decade or so. So this will be the first time the two of us are in the same place. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be cool. Excellent, man. No, it's great. If you don't mind, I'd love to hear the origin story. I know, obviously... You and Kurt uh, Busick doing Marvels came first, but tell me about you know how you how you did you bring this idea to DC? How did how did Kingdom Come happen? Oh, it's such a yeah, it's a long twisted path. Um, <laughs> it uh, basically I had an idea for wanting to do something in the exact same mold as Marvels, where I had a human protagonist surrounded by a bunch of superheroes in much the same story way, except I knew now I want to use my dad as the model character. I started to build a loose framework. I was very loose. I uh, started to collaborate on some ideas with a friend of mine, and then I put a, a write-up of those ideas together. Um, you know, was thinking about potential writers I would try and pitch. And uh, over the course of time, lots of people that have been part of this process between Mark, myself, and our various friends have contributed things that made their way into crafting the whole story. So it was kind of like a, it took a village to build Kingdom Come in many ways. Um, you know, the first person I actually pitched it to before I brought it to D.C. was James Robinson. And he's the one that told me about Alan Moore's having come up with an idea that was so similar to the same concept. Um, so it was kind of a weird thing to then, you know, keep in mind, like, okay, you don't want to be, you know, you know you're in good company as being on the same mental track as Alan Moore, sure. but, uh, you know, you want to make sure your thing isn't a complete imitation of the one that he came up with. And I can swear it was independently um, 
conceived. And then uh, when I ultimately came to D.C. with it, uh, it was sitting on the desk of Archie Goodwin for some time because I thought growing up in the 80s, the one editor you've heard of as a legend was Archie. Absolutely. And I thought, I have a chance to possibly work with that legend who was behind so many other projects and so forth. Well, you know, Archie was going through various bouts of um, chemo during that period of time in the mid-90s where he was out of office for long stretches. So this thing sat there, and the assistant editor, Peter Tomasi, who became, of course, the famous writer we know today, yep. working for so many on so many things for DC, he reached out to me to do a Spectre cover for them, and I mentioned, hey, I got this pitch sitting on Archie's desk, it's not going anywhere, and it was, you know, a, a simple write-up, well, actually, I shouldn't say simple, it was a really long-winded write-up of my... Um, my notes, my outline for this project that at that point I was calling uh, the end of the heroic age, which is quite the mouthful. Um, <laughs> and uh, ultimately, the pairing between his editor that he reported to, which was Dan Raspler, and uh, Dan basically recommending uh, a couple different writers to me, uh, of the two I, I was shown, I, I responded most to looking at Mark's stuff, who I certainly was familiar with the name, but it, I had to sit down and really immerse myself in his run on Flash with Mike Waringo and others and thought, yeah, this is definitely the kind of um, personal connection and uh, sensitivity that I would want to see this project build off of. And so we were kind of in a, an arranged marriage of sorts. And then over the next few months, we started to craft the full outline of this thing. And then, you know, I, because it was such a hand-in-hand -hand relationship, you know, I got a chance throughout every single issue, every plot point to either bring things in some ways back around to ideas I had from a year or two before or, you know, come up with things on the spot. Let's say, oh, I got this idea for a skeletal-looking dead man. Can you fit him in? You know, things like that. Um so because Kingdom Come is the thing that, in a way, I'm always judged by, um, meaning it's the biggest success of my life. You know, I mean, okay. Basically, something I started doing when I was 24 years old is, like a lot of other people famous for their works in music or cinema, it's the thing that I live in the shadow of for the rest of my years. Oh, man. I don't want to, yeah, I don't want it to be this Citizen Kane Orson Welles thing for you, dude. You've it's been true. Doing fine, it's true. But you've been you doing know, fine I mean, work since then. The justice, it's fine, uh, but, you know, you know, I mean, this is single, the single most popular thing I ever worked on. So Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, at uh, least at least it's awesome, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. At, least, at least it's not your Plan 9 from outer space, you know? Well, in some ways, because it's such a, you know, meant to be kind of an epic project that's meant to be sort of taken in this way of being a last statement about superheroes or that kind of thing, as many of the other things I've worked on have been ambitious, I never wanted something that's trying to sort of outdo it in any way. Understood. You know, sure. I want it to be its own island that's not really, uh, as much as I'm trying to live up to it in a certain degree, I'm not trying to say, oh, but I came up with the plot line that's going to completely blow this out of the water. I, I don't want it to be blown out of the water, at least not by me. Understood. Yeah, no, I don't blame you at all. No, it's, it is. I got to tell you, man, from a personal standpoint, it was Marvel's and then later Kingdom Come that really got me reading comics again because – I, I, you know, and it's funny because we talk to people younger than us, and I don't think they have that awkward – or not awkward, but just that period of, you know, I'm putting down comics, and 
I'm, I'm dating girls, and then college comes, and you don't have money to buy comics. And it was really, uh, you know, for a blip in the mid-'80s, I came back for Watchmen and Dark Knight because those were so significant. But that image period, it just turned me off. It, right. wasn't, it wasn't what I was looking for. And then I saw Marvels, and I thought that was terrific. But then, you know, that, there was two years, right, between Marvels and Kingdom Come when it, when it finally came out? Yeah, and boy, that killed me because I kept meaning for it to come out in uh, in uh, winter of 95. I was hoping that if we had gotten started early enough in 94 that I could have had enough under my belt that we could have shipped at least the first issue in that year so there wouldn't have been more than two years between projects. But unfortunately, we just weren't ahead enough on the schedule for that to be possible, and you know they needed to give it enough of a cushion also, they didn't trust me that I was going to be on time with everything, certainly. Well, okay. I mean, what, did you have also deadline problems with Marvels? No, there was no deadline problems with Marvels. It's just that... Uh, it took time. You know, it took it took a year and a half for both projects. I mean, wow. I was doing four months an issue, and keep in mind, that's 48 pages each issue. So that's... Yeah. Um, I want to say... Well, what is that? That's 10 pages a month? 12 pages a month? Um, so... Yeah, I was working at a pretty steady clip, and I didn't have the kind of competing things in my schedule like covers for other things. Okay. So, you know, I, I was not known in the business otherwise, so there was no demand on my time. You know, the very few other cover gigs that came in, things like when Kurt Busick and I were building Astro City or mm-hmm. – I did a, a couple covers for an Indiana Jones thing for uh, Dark Horse in this infant time back then. So, I mean, there's very few things that really pulled away at me okay. in that beginning of my career. I see. Well, I'll tell you, man, when I saw that preview uh, that they put out and was available at comic stores before it started coming out, Kingdom Come, it just got me really excited. I mean, just those initial images. And what was the preview? I don't remember it now. You know, I just remember like individual, literally like postage stamp thumbnail size. Maybe it was only like a slick front and back thing that had probably the cover on one side and the other. It was quotes from the story. And you would see certainly your iconic, you know, bowed by his failures, Superman with those hooded <laughs> eyes. Dude, I'm telling you that I was literally just telling Mark the same thing. And I've told you this in previous interviews as well. That is like the greatest depiction of Superman. It really, you feel the weight on his shoulders. And just, again, it's, it's so amazing. This, the, the most powerful hero is bowed by his failures. It just looks, and it just, literally, the weight of the world on his shoulders. It's amazing. And just conveyed by those kind of single images. Fantastic, man. Oh, so, thank you. Yeah, and it was exciting. It was like, what is this story? And I assume that the Alan Moore story you were talking about potentially competing was that Twilight of the Gods that never happened. Right. It's essentially the same structured ex- structure, except that uh, Alan's using his favorite character, uh, his pastiche of Sting, <laughs> which was, you know, John Constantine, as the protagonist who's going amongst the superheroes. And, you know, I mean, there's there's such little there's, there's such similarity, but such little when you really read both things. You can read his outline online. I'm sure mm-hmm. it's available anywhere you want to look it up on a website. Yep. But, uh, yeah, it, it, they're such wildly different things because what I feel happens in Alan's stuff is as intimate and as unique as it is, he's examining the heroes from a dispassionate point of view, saying if they're human, their personal eccentricities 
particularly sexual ones, are going to drive who they are and lead to their downfall. And that's what he makes a fundamental aspect of the characters, as opposed to kind of more consistency of characterization. Like, you don't expect Superman, Batman to let you down from who they've been. They're not going to suddenly turn into these awful people when they become older just because, oh, well, you know, human beings, they're all terrible. Right. These characters have to be kind of consistent in and of themselves, you know, and I think that that was something that Mark and I certainly were on the same page about, even if we didn't necessarily mutually discuss it or, or have an exact agreement verbally. I think it was just what was within us, and I can see that more over time with the way that he approaches his material with all various characters over time, and certainly that's been my thing is to be, you know, Mr. You know, uh, ethical superheroes are great kind of guy, like as opposed to, you know, let's figure out what makes them tick. Let's figure out who Mr. Terrific wants to have sex with. Those are not my core interests. I just, uh, <laughs> well, and also, it's weird because, again, I was talking to Mark about the image heroes that were coming before you guys did Kingdom Come. And obviously, a lot of the younger heroes represented in Kingdom Come might have been your comment on the, just their surface. Because on the one hand, I can appreciate a creator going, hey, I could do whatever I want with these heroes. If they want guns, they'll have guns. If they they want to be as extreme as they need to be, there's no man keeping me or, or a corporate man you know, from, from going as far as I want to. And I'm sure that was incredibly freeing and exciting for these young uh, artists and writers to do that. And it seemed obvious that, you know, the, the counterpoint to that was reminding everyone what was at the core of the old heroes and what it means to be heroic. And not, it's not just action and, and excitement. There's, there's, a, there's a reason behind the acts. Yeah, I don't yeah know. you know, what's funny is that uh, of, of those characters making that uh, point, of course, the biggest of those being Magog, um, the, the creator who realized the character was in a way a reflection of him and his contribution to comics got it. He recognized it. And that was, of course, Rob Liefeld. Uh, Rob mentioned to me, well, he asked me years ago, he said, like, that was all about me, wasn't it? <laughs> he recognized that it was a parody of Cable and, you know, I sure. threw in costume elements of, like, I think I gave him Shatterstar's helmet with Cable's arm, just, you know, I repainted him gold, and, you know, I changed the star in his eye to a kind of, um, oh, gosh, it's the Eye of Ra from Egyptian mythology. Okay. Why I picked that, I think I just felt like it started to look Egyptian once you put gold on it, and then I uh, uh, kind of kept embracing that more and more. But, yeah, he got it, and he thought, for him, that was thrilling that that's he made fantastic. an impact on the book. Like, yeah, that's me. That's That character's kind of a parody of me. <laughs> that's great, and I'm glad he took it as positively, it sounds like. Yeah, so he didn't seem to be pissed about it or anything. He he thought it was cool that it was in any way uh, sort of, you know, hey, look at how I made a part, you know, and a contribution to this. So, um, you know, it was uh, it was a fun collaboration. Absolutely. And, and you know, the uh, the I, I mentioned to Mark that, what uh, one in particular aspect that I honestly don't think happened until your guy's story was um, the idea of not just Superman and Batman, but really Wonder Woman as well. And Wonder Woman standing on her own and saying, Clark, we need you. We need you to come back. But then at a certain point, too, not only disagreeing with the way Bruce and his group were doing things, but that Clark was wrong as well. And that she really stood up and said, you're both wrong. 
And it was really kind of interesting. And she became the general of the One Army versus, obviously, Batman's army as well. And it's really this strong of that. And, of course, your wonderful Heikatia, uh cover of her boot on Batman's face. You know, I mean, that's, that's great. Wait, no, you, no, I didn't do that. That was J.G. Jones. Oh, excuse me. I'm so sorry. And my apologies to <laughs> J.G. Jones. I totally forgot that was J.G.'s cover. Yeah, oh, yeah there's, sure. there's a few paintings he's done that I think even I was confused to look at and go, did I do that? <laughs> but, <laughs> okay, uh, I feel better. We, we have some similar <laughs> DNA between the two of us, I guess. So, awesome. Um, yeah, that's no. Uh, I'm that in. That was fantastic. I'll, I'll take the embarrassment, and I appreciate the correction. That was fantastic. <laughs> but let's talk about those moments in Kingdom Come and Wonder Woman really being as strong as she was. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I still look at it at the end, though. She was wrong, though, right? <laughs> right. Oh, no, I mean, absolutely. She, but she again, gave in to the whole warrior side of, I think that was a key thing for Mark, is like, well, Amazons were warriors, right? They weren't just like these angels of peace. That's what comics kind of turned them into, but that's not what they were. And so that's where he let the story take him. But you know what I've come to appreciate that means so much more to me now, especially become because we've we've now seen it taken large with movies illustrating the idea that Superman and Batman must be on opposite sides of an issue. That I brought a project to Mark that was very superficially there's an army of Supermans and then there's an army of Batmans and they fight. And that really was about as complex as I got in much of that. I had a whole bunch of other story pieces, but my main thrust was going to create that. So Mark crafted the twists that would lead us to kind of believing that Batman's on some opposite side of Superman and have it turn out that Batman in, in some ways has Superman's back at the end of the day. And he was never Superman's villain in the story. We just mislead the reader in that direction. And I'm very grateful for that now because I'm exhausted by this constancy of Batman must be the biggest jerk in comics and must, you know, always a sense of he's so righteous and Superman is bad because why? He got powers that Batman didn't get. It just, it gets to be infuriating. And I appreciate the story we told for not going down the exact same stupid road where it's just one opinion of how to approach this material that seems to be thrust down everybody's throat at this point. You know, um, we have a different turn in the story. Agreed. And I also, it is interesting, though, to see Batman, I don't know how you would describe it, because uh, Mark said it was chilling seeing Batman almost enjoying the prospect of having to defend his city that you know and really the world becoming kind of hell on earth and batman's prepared for it and he's got his drones out in gotham and he's always smiling and it well is that was a key thing for me of like i was trying to reflect back upon visually uh the origins of both character designs and if you think about what joe schuster's art style was in the 40s versus say the bob kane house art style on mm -hmm. batman Batman was the one who was constantly smiling, grinning ear to ear. Yes, sir. Superman largely had the squint and kind of maybe the smirk, but not necessarily the big toothy grin on all of his covers or all of his interiors. In many ways, especially just take in mind that uh, Fleischer cartoon, that's a stern-looking guy. Yep. You know, he's got more of a Clint Eastwood expression on his face. 
And so that's why I wanted to apply the smile motif to Batman in our story, because I wanted to reflect back upon those earliest origins of graphic design for the characters. So since it didn't compete with anything that Mark was, was writing or doing, it certainly fit in a creepy way to have this you know, aging Gregory Peck version of Batman um, have <laughs> yeah. this kind of, you know, what is he smiling about? You know, why is he, you know, such a smart ass? And, and I, th- I find the fun of it that we were kind of breaking perception of what the character was, how he would have to behave. He's hanging out in a T-shirt, really. Yes. You know, he's not dressed to the nines in the whole story. Well, he wore a suit once, but you get the idea. I hear you, man. No, and, and I said, too, I love that. Because of his years of, of service, he's literally being held by the, together by the cybernetics. And, and well, pointing out the, the idea that getting a, uh, away from that idea that what doesn't kill you makes me stronger is like, no, what doesn't kill you may slowly tear your body apart, <laughs> you know, and that that's reality. You know, not this constant fantasy of like, you know, if you somehow overwill your 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 mind over body is like, you know, at a certain point, that's just BS. I hear you. you know. Tell me, tell me about designing the the next gen, both the adult versions of the sidekicks. Because good Christ, Red Robin, what a wonderful costume! <laughs> Seriously, man, like the and it's it does it didn't surprise me that they brought it back a few times, like during Countdown and uh, some of the other recent iterations and stuff. Because it is, it's such a great costume. Um, but okay. yeah, like some of these designs for not only the sidekicks as they're getting older but also uh, their children, the hero's children and everything. Well, I mean, it, it allowed me to mix together a bunch of influences here and there, like in the case of Robin, as you mentioned. Uh, mostly I just always thought, like, well, if you did an adult version of Robin instead of the whole thing of becoming Nightwing, um, you know, his costume works really well looking just like Batman but without the ears because it represents the shape of a bird head quite nicely. Sure. You know, so I thought, what a perfect fit. Plus, I saw it graphically done when I was a kid in one of these odd stories that was done with uh, Batman and the character Cobra. Um, it wasn't Cobra's design. It was Batman masquerading as one of Cobra's henchmen where he wore this green headgear that just flattened his ears down, but it's covering his mask otherwise. And I thought, wow, that mask looks cool without even the ears. Why don't they ever do that? Interesting. And so that was my way to apply it here in this context. But, um, you know, I was sticking in characters in many cases that were coming from my scrapbook of old character designs I'd had since I was a little kid. In some cases, I was marrying things up that I'd had as influences my whole life. Like, um, I had made up a character that was sort of like my lead female hero heroine um, when I was a kid called Nightstar. And now her skin was blue and she had, you know, glowing ray red powers and such but a lot of the physical essential design was the same and then i realized well she could fit in this thing by being the daughter of now you know adult dick grayson and um starfire absolutely uh which i i had no idea at the time i was working on kingdom come that the two had even broken up in the comics i wasn't even following it that closely. <laughs> i just thought that you know well Shouldn't they wind up married? I was very behind the time. So I thought, yeah, sure, they should have a daughter in the future. And she could be a combination of both names. And then bada-bing, you know, all I had to do is change the skin tone and, you know, uh, make the hair a little bit longer. And then suddenly she's like her mother's daughter. And, um, you know, one of those things that now I've got an action figure of a concept that I had when I was 11. 
That's fantastic. And also, uh, Batman's son, Ra's al Ghul's da- uh, grandson, who we now see again as a little kid, Damien. But you've got adult Damien and, you know, obviously leading a lot more towards Ra's al Ghul at this point because of Mike's bar's son of the demon story, I think, more so. Uh, yeah, but, you just figure that, like, you know, I mean, even Mark wrote a, a, you know, an issue of his Kingdom series that focused upon the idea of, you know, they go and get the child of Talia and Batman and raise him in the uh, environment of, um, you know, the the League of Assassins. Yep. And yep. of course, he would become their heir apparent. You know, that would be his point. Um, but he too, in my mind, not the character of Damien, son of Batman, so much. But what my lead hero as a kid before 1986 was a character I had named the Dark Knight, um, and he was like a male counterpart to the Nightstar character. And since I was a child who grew up loving the Flash Gordon movie, in my mind he was based upon the likeness of uh, Sam Jones. So I was thinking of this son of Batman as being Sam Jones' likeness on this character that was otherwise now going to be retrofitted as Talia and Batman's son grown up. I can see it in the face now that you say that. That's that's awesome. That's fantastic. That's actually how I got to know Sam Jones as I had uh, forwarded on a copy collection of uh, Kingdom Come to him through a mutual friend and uh, got him to know that he was an influence on my creative life before we got to do anything together. But, uh, yeah, I let my hero know somehow that he had this influence on me, and, you know, luckily it uh, it made a difference. That's outstanding, man. Also, when we were talking about the Easter eggs that you guys put in, in the book, and he and, and really Mark credited and said, you know, hey, if it's just something in the background with not, not anybody talking, that's that's all Alex. And I love the fact that you put the shadow in the bar scene. <laughs> well, you notice that. he's hanging out with all these sort of detective archetypes <laughs> from, you know, uh, Rorschach to, uh, oh, gosh, I put the question in there, too, didn't I? Absolutely. Yep. You know, and I think Sherlock Holmes, is he also yes. in Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I don't know why. I think I stuck in uh, Swamp Thing with wearing the trench coat in there, too, didn't I? Oh, I'm going to have to go back and look. That's awesome, man. <laughs> That's fantastic. And yeah, also, I know. it doesn't make a lot of sense, but there it is. No, and Planet Krypton and all the great uh, knickknacks and everything that are in the glass boxes. And it, you know, I told, I said this. Oh, actually, you know, I think that that's a lot of where Mark was giving me very tight directions because, I mean, the very concept of that place and all the environments there, that was where I was following, I want to say, pretty strict. Uh, uh, lead on on what he was saying that wasn't just me filling up crap in the background okay that was him telling me what to put in there so oh wow okay uh, you know i think he made like a laundry list and then i could also add to it but you know by the time we were doing the uh the sort of apocryphal content when we added the story at the end of the series um for the hardcover collection i think on every page just about he gave me direction for what stuff to you know try and piece in the background yeah did you go? You know, we had a Planet Hollywood. I know you remember, but I'm saying it for the audience. We had a Planet Hollywood in Chicago. Did you go there and just kind of get a feel? God forbid. I would never want to go yeah. there. And I think you're the, my kind of guy, too. That's like, yeah, that's all right. I don't need to go there. No, I, I went there and photographed the exterior, which is very clearly from the exterior shot of it. You can mm-hmm. see part of the glass uh, edifice to it, I think, is the same as the actual Planet Hollywood. But the interior is purely 100%. Uh, taken from our Chicago location for um, the Hard Rock. Oh, that fantastic! Hard... Sure, right down the yeah, street. Yeah, that's from the Hard Rock's yeah. uh, 
floor, interior tables. I mean, I still have the photos for all this stuff. So, I mean, I know, yeah, I just didn't do any invention of anything here. This is just purely ripping off the hard rock because I knew it was it needed to be that kind of structure environment where they sure. stick all the paraphernalia around. Um, I think the only thing that is in there that's straight out of what it looked like in Planet Hollywood is the Adam West costume in that kind of container that it's shown in. <laughs> that's fantastic, man. Very, very cool. What are you like? Are there are, are there moments that you are you know? God damn, I did, I nailed that pretty well. I mean, you know, I, and also I want to know like was was there ever a conversation with you and your father about superheroes in the way that he speaks in the book? I mean, how how did you really get his character beyond obviously you know knowing your father and and being with him? You know, how did you how did you handle those Superman Norman conversations in the book? <laughs> Well, wait. He and Superman have like one conversation. Oh, the really? It's the series, Spectre. So. You're right. Forgive me. It's the Spectre. Yeah. Right? That oh, okay, the Spectre thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, we were agreeing upon a, a pretty, um, you know, transformed kind of version of the way to look at the Spectre with this, where it's much more haunted, much more straight ripping off. Um, the uh, Christmas Carol kind of effect of sure. the ghosts of you know future present and whatever that uh, and past that come to visit uh, uh, Ebenezer. So you know it was a spin on that sort of thing. And knowing that we had a very strong perception of what the character was either historically or in the current comics, and we were breaking from that to give uh, a stronger sense of him being this figure that is technically supposed to be connected more to God than the superheroes. So, Absolutely. You know, there'd be this, you know, sense of mystery. And hopefully what's very clear to people is like, look, I'm drawing a guy who's, you know, so removed from us, he's just walking around naked. You know, he's got a cloak that's covering nothing. There ain't no little shorts or booties, and you can see it from the art that there's nothing going on there. Yep. He's just... You know, the the cloak is falling in just the right spot every time you're looking at him to prevent us from seeing naked bits. You know, <laughs> I got a few naked characters in the, you know, like my version of Flash is also supposed to be like a god figure that, you know, there's no clothes there. That's just a glowing red body that's vibrating at, you know, a million miles an hour. So, um, you know, there's, there's that. But um, as far as uh, the characterization of my dad talking to the Spectre, you know, I mean, it... it it's mostly pretty decent as far as um, kind of bringing that guy to life. But then Mark and I would have arguments about how much it could hew to this person that certainly Mark didn't know. Right. And he would eventually meet my dad, but he wasn't, um, you know, he wasn't feeling beholden to try and match it to my personal perception exactly limiting of what this person had to be. And I had to give on some of that. And the worst thing that I felt, uh, well... I'm not coming from a, uh, a a religious background, nor is my dad, of holding a very strong connection to the the belief in the Book of Revelation, and different religious sects have different attachments to that. But that was a a key plot point, a key thing that sparked off Mark's uh, creativity with this, and that's where he thought, "Look, I'm going to make that the thing that you're having a religious figure in the story interpreting." that what's happening with these superheroes is a validation of the details of the book of Revelation. And if you really go through the book of Revelation, it's got a whole lot going on in it that you could interpret a million different ways and too many different things to pull from that we really didn't have 
either the focus or time to sort of make all these parallels that were possible. But it was odd for me because I know that's not the kind of, we don't have an evangelical background in right. my family. That's not where we come from. And that's not sort of, but, but then again, the way that Mark's characterizing this minister is that he's not himself directly kind of like, that's not his thing, but it's kind of becoming his thing because it's sort of passed on to him from another character at the beginning of the story. And that's of course being Wesley Dodds, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's just, there's this one point where, of course, when he's in the room with Superman and he starts quoting these, these moments from, you know, the when he's saying, uh, for the hour of his judgment has come, and he's certainly spouting off scripture. And we had a real fight about this where I just said, you're making my dad look like a buffoon, <laughs> you know, where he's like suddenly he's babbling, you know, like what the hell, why would he even start doing that? And you got Mark yelling at me, he's like, he's not your father. Interesting. So, sure. you know, and here I am, you know, 20 years later, and it's like, well, I don't know, he's still kind of my dad, and he's, you know, this is this has been a thing that other people have met my dad and seen him and thought he is that guy, you know. Did so you dad, we, did, did he ultimately like the story? I didn't mean to step on you. Finish your thought and then answer my question. Oh, I, uh, you know, <laughs> either way, we made our, made our peace with it that now, you know, it's a, it's a, an account of, uh, of of some form of creative history where it's now part of my dad's, uh, you know, his his own legacy in a way comes in this comic book always being in print. <laughs> did he like it or did he, how how did he feel about it? You know, when I asked my dad to write an intro for the hardcover collection, he then said to me, and this is a guy who posed for every month that I was working <laughs> on it. He was always, you know, I was going see him at his church and, you know, photograph him and everything and he said like uh yeah, I guess I have to read it now. <laughs> so, you know, it just comic books, superheroes has not ever been my dad's thing, but what I always found was really interesting with um with him from from the age that he was born in 1921, he was just too old to be the kind of kid who would have started reading comic books. So he's a man that when he eventually, you know, enlisted in the service in World War II, you know, he would have been a guy completely removed from that uh, that growing popular world of characters and things. It would have meant nothing to him until ultimately it meant something to me growing up in the 70s. So um, all the art support and interest really comes from my mother's side because she was an artist before me. And so this was my way of sort of dragging this very common, you know, American or, or common story of all kids with fathers is that you're trying to make your father care somewhat about what you're into, the crazy stuff that you like. Sure. And here I am dragging my parent into my world, making them part of that world so that my world almost overlaps and then smothers his to a certain degree. (laughs) (laughs) So that now people will spot him and say, hey, aren't you that guy? And, you know. That happened to him a few times, not that much. Oh, man. Is he, is he still with us? or is... He is. My dad was 74 when this book came out, and he is 94 today. That's fantastic, man. Congratulations. That's wonderful. And your mom, is, is your mom still with us? Yeah, yeah. She That's is great, 88. Honestly. 
Good for so. you, man. That's wonderful. <laughs> Seriously, no, honestly, my parents, my parents passed away young. My aunt is ninety-five. So honestly, it is wonderful to have somebody in the family that has that kind of perspective that only comes at that age and really can't step back. It was, I mean, no, not, nothing magical about the wisdom, but literally just living through all this and can compare the way things were to the way things are. And, and in a lot of ways, like, yeah, this is really no different than what I lived through 50 years ago or whatever. So, well, there's always something I felt strongly about with people that have been around to witness not just those elements in history with the particular wars that went past, but also, um, you know, that they were alive at the time that these things that we love so much were around. And I feel very saddened by the passing of all those people that are, you know, slowly leaving us that like, oh my gosh, we're losing that direct connection. And I can only hope that new generations find some recognition for the importance of those prior events because the 20th century is such a a key point of um you know it's like an explosion of obviously history but creativity and so many things that i feel are important today the fact that we can have um a love of cartoons that say disney made 80 years ago could mean so much to kids growing up now I find that fantastic, and I love the tether of thinking that there's people who are old now that remember that stuff as being new when it came out. I absolutely agree, yeah. And also, I always think that literally because we are so heavily digitized now and every moment has been captured really since the 90s, um, the 20th century is that last century where we do need to rely on uh, the people that were there, not everything was recorded. A lot was. I mean, we had radio, and then we had film, and then we had television. But there are still pockets of things that, you know, did happen, were significant, and we have to rely on, a, a, you know, a news reporter's uh, account of it. Or again, you know, oral history. I was there when MacArthur made this speech, or when Truman, you know, was crapping on uh, uh, Senator McCarthy. And nobody, you know, and, and there was no newsreel running, but, you know, he said it, you know, stuff like that. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm even involved with a television project about um, uh, a, a Kennedy incident. I'll tell you about it off the record because I want to okay. say it for the TV show. But, yeah, it's, you know, and it happened in Chicago. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm relying on hearsay for to, to really piece together the story because a lot of it wasn't uh, documented by radio or television or, or newsreel at that time. So I love I, I always I was always attached to things that had come before just because it seemed fascinating to find out the origins of things and the original era these things came from because it all still seemed like it was it was well before my time but it was still within memory of a lot of people and I love the idea that you can you know somehow connect with that uh, I mean as a kid when I would see the reprints that were done by DC or Marvel and absolutely tabloid yeah. and whatever the way they reprinted them. Yes, 80-page giants, the 100-page spectaculars, the the treasury edition size reprints. Go on, please. Just the, 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 the sort of primitive quality of the artwork only inspired me to want to know more because there was always something there in the DNA of something early on that was unique and powerful but essential to the character's and they're, they're, sometimes it would be things that have been forgotten or lost about their inherent qualities that could always be recaptured if you made an effort to recognize that. Yep. And that's something that always attracted me as a young kid. And, you know, it drove a lot of my creativity 
uh, a lot of my drive as an artist was to try and somehow tap into those things if I could as I worked with these things as an adult. Like, so every time I'm doing, you know, Marvel characters, I'm trying to connect with what Jack Kirby's art style is, if I can, you know, or, or you know, obviously with Superman, I want to go back to Joe Schuster and, you know, so on and so cool. forth, those kind of things. I, And I would like to think that even if a young generation now hasn't had the familiarity with the earliest stuff that maybe if they connect through what somebody like me does, they'll feel connected to this thing that has a much deeper history than just what I've been able to try and reconnect with in the last 25 years. I hear you, man. And also, we just grew up with that stuff, whether it was on television or, you know, movie revival houses, as opposed to, you know, today's DVD world and stuff. I mean, it's, it's really, we were just exposed to that old stuff. Because it was good. And, and, you know, in some ways it was just accidental where, you know, one of the UHF channels is running it because it's cheap programming to get movies from the 30s and 40s. But, I mean, it really was when, you know, we were living in a five-channel television world. That's all we had. And and luckily then, you know, we, we get to see the Marx Brothers at their best and Abbott and Costello and the Stooges and, uh, you know, again, even and appreciating – the George Reeves Superman for what it is and the, and the Fleischer cartoons and the Adam West Batman. I mean, you know, it's, it's great that, you know, the people now are finally like maybe unclenching their butts and aren't as, you know, uptight about the Adam West portrayal. And it's like, yeah, it dominated. And, they, you know, and well, they appreciate for the comedy that it was and not, and oh, not sure. that, you know, because, and, and really in fairness, we also got stuck with a legacy of really crappy superhero TV and movies that kept trying to go back to that Adam West style, thinking, well, that's the only way you can do it. Thankfully, right. you know, there were guys before you, like Denny O'Neill and, and Neil Adams, that were able to do it in the comics. And truly, your own realism in your art and stuff, I think, really brought back a, a real level of dignity to, to the heroes. It, it is so much fun for me to bring friends that aren't comic book fans into a comic store today. And I swear, Alex, I point to your art. I point to a lot of other really beautiful, illustrative people, George Pratt, when I can find it. Um, I'm trying to think of, you know, a lot of J.G. Jones, but like those, those stuff, Dave McKean, you know, and it's like, wow. And they're thinking comic books and they're kind of thinking Dennis the Menace, High and Lois, no offense to Hank Kitchum and I forget High and Lois's creator, but, uh, you know, and, and that, that comic strip, you know, that, that, that Bigfoot cardi, tar, cartoony comic strip style, which is awesome. And I'm glad that that exists as well. Art and Franco from, Oh, yeah, comics obviously represent that that end as well. But it's just nice to see that there's this diversity and that they see this level of sophistication. And maybe really, you know, it was projects like yours that really, you know, hopefully ushered in this new television and movie uh, era where it's like, you know, you can actually do good versions of this stuff and take it, I'm putting air quotes up, seriously and still have good entertainment. And clearly it's happening. The movies are doing well. And I'm just thrilled that the television is doing well. And, and yeah, some of that is extremely satisfying. And, of course, there's points where I look at it as somebody who's been so attached to uh, a serious take on these things that now sometimes I'll say, oh, geez, it's serious enough. Back off. Lighten <laughs> up a bit, you know. You know, I'll realize it can go too far the other way. Sure. You know, but when you feel like there's a vacuum of that, in the era that you come into, you want to try and push in that direction. And, you know, now you can say you've seen sort of three very serious Batman films that take the character so seriously that you feel like, okay, now I can take some more fantasy back again. You know, sure. Um, there's an ebb and flow with all that kind of approach. 
are you enjoying these uh, CWDC shows? Yeah, that's like the best thing that uh, Warner Brothers has been able to get a handle on with how to handle, you know, how to take these characters out there for a modern generation. They don't always capture the things that you like or, or maybe that you know is really a, another way. I mean, you watch a show like Arrow, and it's like you've never actually seen the Green Arrow you knew. You're seeing a Green Arrow. Yes. But you're kind of happy that at least something is being done with this that's not laughable. It's, it's actually, you know, it's trying to be very serious, and it's putting the character out there. We're now a generation of people that have heard of this character. Yeah. Absolutely. How about Supergirl? What do you think of Supergirl? She's wonderful. Casting on a lot of these leads has always been very charming. So for um, uh, what is her name? I'm sorry. But Melissa Melissa Benoist and I'm and Benoist. I'm, yeah, I, and I, I'm probably saying it wrong. It's probably Benoit or something. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, uh, or you know, the young guy on on Flash. I mean, what's what's so I think essential with the casting choices in this stuff is that the people be charming. Yes, sir. And I think there's an invisible quality there that is not fully recognized by all the people in Hollywood making these choices. Sure. And sometimes it's completely missed out on. But luckily with the TV stuff, that's been a key thing. I mean, if anything, in fact, it's made me realize just how much we lost in the form of uh, Brandon Ralph. Uh, having played uh, Superman before, if we had gotten more time to get to know him in that part, you know, letting him make the part a little bit more his own and somebody like me putting aside my own perception of what I thought I wanted Superman to be, that there's a really good version of the character that it would, he would have delivered to us over more films if we had gotten that. You know, that Agreed. he's a very charming, likable person that is frankly a pretty good like Garcia Lopez Neil Adams style version of the character Agreed. that I would have been happy to see I just you know you can imagine somebody like me has been led to believe by people's kind words about my own work that's like well I got to have a guy that looks like uh, you know this big bruiser version of Superman and if it's not going to be that then I'm not happy and well it still has yet to happen, but <laughs> it probably never will happen at this state. But, um, you know, there can be other ways to view the character for sure. Absolutely. No, and, you know, I'm really happy for Ralph in particular that he's doing so well with a different kind of Adam than we're used to from the comics. But it's charming. And it really, for me, it's like, oh, good redemption for you, man. Because Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm I mean, glad to see him in any form. I'd be happy to watch him on any show he's in, in this one or any other where he can get to be – in this kind of, I'm, I'm glad he's in the same genre. It's fun to have him around still. Agreed. And Chris Evans too, uh, who did fine as Johnny Storm in those. I mean, you know, he wasn't yeah. the problem with those Fantastic Four movies. But God, I got to tell you, I love him as Captain America, Chris Evans. <laughs> I didn't hate those Fantastic Four movies, but you know, I, I think at this point, if you're going to really capture the magic of Fantastic Four, I think you honestly, and I, heaven knows what they're thinking over at Marvel when they could ever get the property back, but. I think you do have to really set it in the 60s. You do have to fully embrace graphically every single thing that was on the page so that you really try and capture that magic in motion. Just married up with Mad Men and just try and make it true to this period, even if you want to have them time travel to the present and cross over with your other universe of characters. I think you need to make them born in the 60s like they originally were. That's a great idea. Seriously, man. They've that's... tried every other modernization. Let's go the other way. Well, and, and but even, like, if you want, fine, you can have them today, but have their roots in that Cold War period. I mean, really, Byrne 
in the 80s when he took over the book really brought that look back. I mean, it was modern stories. He puts Ben back in the trench coat and the hat, and, you know, it really well, did. Yeah. It felt like, it felt like old Kirby. You're right, man. Yeah, I mean, you could do it in a way that's not spoken of and just make it have that sort of 60s sheen to it in a modern age. But I think story-wise, you could do it much the same way as they did with Chris Evans' Captain America and have the initial outing of it established that they started in the 60s with this, you know, initial kind of rocket launch and, you know, pre-moon landing, and then ultimately have them you know, have mastery over time like they did in a lot of their adventures because they stole Doom's time machine or whatever, <laughs> you know? Absolutely, yeah, I man. mean, why not, you know? I mean, you know, the the sky's going to be the limit very soon on all the places that Marvel can take all their various characters, and, you know, it just feels like there's a, you know, kind of endless amount of stuff they can do with this material going forward. You know, we could stop having movies about the Avengers in the near future, and then they could... If they could get FF back from Fox, they could make a whole investment in how that's a part of their growing new film universe or all. Well, you know what I'm saying. Absolutely, man. No, and in fact, I really liked how they had in the Ant-Man movie, Henry Pym kind of, you know, doing the Ant-Man thing in the in potentially the 70s and 80s. And it's like, wow, you know, and, and having that common thread of Peggy Carter and S.H.I.E.L.D. kind of, you know, going through time. And it's like I was thinking the same thing, that wouldn't it be great to see some Marvel adventures set during the Cold War or during, you know, again, that 70s or, or early 80s period and, and just have some adventures them and, and really give some her other B and C level heroes a chance to be the ones to save the world and everything. I think it's a great opportunity. Yeah, well, yeah. we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. But no, you got good ideas, man. I like it. I, I You know, and also, I really love the fact that uh, you're, you're, you've been doing these great covers. Um Sal, in fact, uh, Sal Abinati, your your art dealer for people people know, of course, I, and I, I don't know how aware you are, but you know, Sal makes the rounds on these podcasts. He's kind of a folk hero. I've heard that. Yes, I've <laughs> I've never actually sat and listened to him, but you got to realize every phone call with Sal is like what I've heard about him doing on these podcasts. <laughs> oh yeah, so, oh no, he's just you know, I what? get to live it all the time. If I, I want to get Sal's, you know, whatever you call him, <laughs> Uncle Sal, is that what his nickname well, is? Well, on some podcasts he's Uncle Sal. I'm like, you know, yeah. we're, just, we're close enough to the same age and I'm like, yeah, he's not my uncle. It's all right. Well, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I think I'm older than him a little bit anyway. But no, he cracks me up. But he just sent me today, he texted me, you're connecting covers of, of the new Avengers. And, uh, and they look great. But I mean, I noticed even for Civil War, you had a couple great. I, I saw them on on uh, either on your page on Facebook or Sal's. You know, just promoting your stuff. Some great Iron Man and ba and, uh, and Captain America kind of battle cover scenes and stuff. I'm not sure where they were from. If they were lithos that are coming up or yeah, that's that's a lithograph that we we're doing. Yeah, fantastic. We created the uh, original fight cover that Kirby did of uh, from Tales of Suspense. Oh, that's awesome, man. That is great. And and yeah, I'm, I'm really I'm glad. You know, dude, honestly. Whether you were doing your Project Superpower stuff, and because uh, I, I am as fascinated by the Golden Age characters as you clearly are as well, and your reinterpretations and some new designs were really great. It is always fun to go back to home cooking, though, as well, and see you doing, you know, these iconic people at DC and Marvel, and uh, it's it's really good that you're doing this Marvel stuff lately. I, I'm I'm really enjoying it. Of course, half of the characters are all, re or most of the characters are all redesigned. So I mean, there's that kind of thing of 
All right, this is what it looks like right now. <laughs> sure. No, I get you. I mean, they're not bad-looking designs, but there is that part of you going, can I draw the John Buscema's costume for Vision, please? You know, but <laughs> at least I, I don't have... I don't disrespect what the new designs are. You know, sometimes I I absolutely I won't touch certain character designs because I'm like, no, you know what? Don't make me draw Captain America, Steve Rogers, without the wings on the hair, the the helmet. Atta boy, you damn absolute right. Absolute for me. He absolutely <laughs> has to have those. It wouldn't take away the Flash's little wing pieces. So right. why would you take away caps? And we've got this thought of like, well, they look silly. It's like, no, maybe the way you draw them, they look silly. <laughs> I agreed, man. And going back to TV, isn't it great? And I don't know how to say Grant's last name, but the kid who plays the Flash, when he has the flat, when he has the mask hanging from his neck, and he's just, you know, it's his head, and he's in. It, it's just, it is so Barry Allen. It's just so, oh, and yeah. it, you know, he's not, he's not blonde. He doesn't have the crew cut, but it's okay. And it's like, God damn, there's, there's the Flash in the flesh. That's insane. And it's just so wonderful to see him really be the Flash. And he's got the wings hanging from his neck and everything. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, there is a thing that is still going on when they make these rubber masks, whether it's like his or the one for uh, Ben Affleck or whatever, we've still yet to see where they just take latex rubber or latex makeup and let it really just be like makeup. Instead of trying to convince me it's a real thing that a person has to really wear, just make it look like it is in a drawing where it looks like a second layer of skin that's not thick. It's just like it's painted on the human being. Sure. I don't want to see these things get as big as they always make them to be, where they stick out from the skin and they're bulging. And you know what happens is that that headpiece on the actor is not only making them sweat profusely underneath there, but also it's pressing in on the face, like bunching up the cheeks and pushing them forward. And, you know, it just is... I know they're not going to make these things out of fabric because it doesn't necessarily look the way you want it to look, but... You know, enough with the giant rubber headgear. <laughs> Who made your costumes for your f photography? Because I've never, I'm, I'm aware of your Halloween parties, and yeah. I know that you've got a hell of a lot of costumes, which is fantastic. But and also, again, uh, uh, Sal, uh, as some know who listen to podcasts, was your your model, of course, for Captain Marvel. Yes. And and so yeah, I mean, yeah, he's got me wearing the thing and the cape and everything, you know, in that great Sal way. But yeah, like. Well, who makes the I, I actually, uh, when when he posed for Kingdom Come, all we had was just a jacket that another friend of mine had made for a costume party going back in the early 90s. Okay. Something that this guy had from, you know, just a homemade outfit that his wife made for him. So I cool. borrowed that and had a cape and then, you know, pretty much would just make up the rest. And so by the time I was doing uh, these solo books for the DC characters I did, um you know, I wanted to get something more all together, the whole outfit top to bottom. And uh, I had a friend of mine who she made a majority of these outfits for me. And, um, you know, we were commissioning them one after the other just because, you know, it seemed like a good investment to have that I can now have this, you know, rack full of these outfits for so many key characters that I could always go to in a pinch if I need to get some shots of this or that character quickly, and I can study the way that light plays off of the different fabrics, the different colors. You know, sometimes I can learn things that I wouldn't otherwise think of automatically, just making it up out of my imagination. You know, so it mattered to have a real thing. I understand. Absolutely. You know, have you ever... I mean, go ahead. 
Oh, I was just going to say, and then, you know, amongst that same process, I, I did the same thing they would do for the movies where I actually uh, got a head cast of my model for Batman and sculpted a clay Batman mask that later I got molded in rubber and would have him wear. And, you know, something that would be like what my approximation would be for the character design. Here I've got a man wearing it that, you know, matches what my art style version is going to be. And it wasn't the movie one exactly. And it's trying to be whatever I think it should try and look like. And, you know, it was a very interesting exercise to try and study something that, uh, you know, isn't just sort of department store bought. Understood. Are you, have you revealed some of your uh, models that you've, you've used for your various uh, heroes and villains? Revealed them? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how secret it is or whatever, or if that's, you know, or, you know, whatever. I mean, like in, like in the case of Sal, um, oh, God, and I know Holly from uh, from First Comics. Didn't didn't, didn't she end up uh, being a couple uh, images? Yeah, of... yep. You knew her from First Comics? Well, I didn't know her from First Comics, but I know her now. Uh, Holly Holly Crane, Barry Crane's wife. Uh, I, right. I've, I've gotten to know Barry and Holly uh, in the last few years. Well, again, like I told you off the air, I grew up in Walmart. And really, like, first comics started happening just as I left for college. And I, oh. tell, I tell Mike Gold and Mike Grell uh, and Shaken and those guys, I'm like, you know, I just missed you guys. <laughs> because, <laughs> because literally I was downstate in Bloomington and everything at Illinois State uh, while, while they were, you know, doing, doing first and everything. And I was reading the books. I, I really enjoyed Loved John Sable. Loved, uh, loved American Flag. Uh, you know, God, uh, and now I'm blanking, uh, Ostrander's... Uh, Grimjack, of course, and Tim Truman. Jesus, oh yeah, man. No, they're they're cool. And in fact, later worked at WXRT Radio, which you know, album rock station in Chicago. And a big hangout was the Bucket of Suds on Cicero Avenue, right by oh, the yeah. station. And that was, you know, for listeners who don't know, that was kind of the template for Munden's Bar. Right. And and in right. fact, uh, Ostrander used it in uh, in uh, Hawkman. He uh, when Hawkman went in the eighties was based in Chicago. He would go to the Bucket of Suds. <laughs> which, which was great. So yeah, man. No, I just like I said, I just kind of missed some of uh, you guys. And did you, you did a little first stuff, didn't you? Or no? No, no. I I got into the business in '89, late '89. I got to work with Now Comics. Yes, and indeed. First, the first might have still been around at that point, but by the time I was really raring to get more well out of my day job and into um, uh, into full time employment in comics, I. Um, uh, I, I was working with Eclipse and then eventually Marvel, and by the time I got to meet everybody else in Chicago who has been working here for in comics for so many years, that's exactly when first folded. Okay. So I mean I don't know if that was ninety one, ninety two, somewhere in there, but basically, yeah, by the time I met everybody else in Chicago, people like Holly, um, first was gone. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I and, you know I I believe I've mentioned this to you before, but for listeners' purposes, now comics, uh, you're you're terminated to the burning earth, and I hope this doesn't hurt you because I know that uh, they probably owed you a hell of a lot more money than you ended up getting for that thing. But I worked at the bank that handled their uh, bank accounts, and I c would see these checks for terminator the burning earth, terminator the burning earth, and and every now and then a rep from now comics. I worked in customer service. And, uh -huh. it, you know, they'd call from Now Comics, and I'd be like, how's the Green Hornet doing? I, I love the book, and I'd tell them that, and they were tickled that I was reading the books and stuff. Uh, but, yeah, I was like, okay, this term, Terminator, the Burning Earth, who is this guy? Who, you know, and then, and then I saw the work, and it's like, wow, look at this. Holy shit. 
You know, and that was my first exposure to you was seeing Burning Earth and everything. And like I said, when I heard you were doing Marvels, it's like, oh, that's the Burning Earth guy. I got to go check this out. That's going to be great. <laughs> well, I mean, as you mentioned, their checks, I mean, that was a, a key uh, problem, or at least one one experience to get out of your way early in your career is to have your first lawsuit happen right out of the gate. Wow. So I, ha- I had to sue them over uh, remaining royalties that they owed, and um, there was at least the last issue and the trade that they never paid me for. And uh, so I took them to – they owed me over, uh, I think, eleven grand, and took them to court, and – uh, basically, they declared what is it, Chapter Eleven? Where you? Yeah, that's that's usual bankruptcy. That's kind of normal bankruptcy, yeah. Chapter Eleven. Of course, the irony wound up being that because the actual company that had all these deals, the parent company behind now was actually Caputo Publishing, and that would take all the brunt of you know that was the thing that went away. Now, comics was a name free of debt, and so therefore he could sell the name now to another competing or brand new independent company that then didn't have any of that debt hanging over their heads, didn't owe me any money, and they could suddenly come back and be in publishing again. And I was, you know, I had nothing, except that when the guy came hunting after me again to offer me new employment, there I could pay, he could pay me so much on top of what page rate he was offering to cover the old debt so I didn't take that deal. Okay. I felt like if you owe me that money, pay me that money. But, sure. You know, I, that new company that they wound up doing the Mr. T comic with. and Oh, God, I remember that. Else. Yeah. Maybe it was Twilight Zone happened with the second version of the company. But, uh, yeah, I, I had no further involvement. And luckily, my career at that point didn't need any, you know, need what, what money they did owe me, but certainly a lot of other people got hurt when that whole ship went down. Understood, man. No, I understand. And, you know, again, thankfully your talent, you know, other opportunities came. And a cautionary tale. I mean, you know, I know people speak that way about speakeasy comics. I know you remember them from the Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. There you go. Exactly. You know, for, you know, uh, really, uh, you know, it actually was talking about speakeasy comics, I think, because of uh, the passing of Darwin Cook and everything this week. And we were talking about he was one of the speakeasy guys. My buddy Josh Malkoff, yeah. and he didn't, I know Sal Abinati, in fact, with uh, Atomica. Was, he should uh, was tell you speaker. off the air what he has to say about that. <laughs> I, I think I, we've had that conversation. So oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, I do want to talk about some of these other licensing things you're doing um, because, uh, well, one in particular, I'm going to save it for last. But first of all, uh, really cool, uh, Sal told me uh, you and the Universal Monsters are going to be uh, doing some great things. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, if we're announcing that now, yeah, I've been uh, already producing some paintings, and this I'll be a whole. Uh, it'll be a whole portfolio set of uh, was it like seven or eight of the monsters, whichever. <laughs> well, yeah, let's, um, let's go through the list. It's Dracula, Frankenstein, uh, Wolfman, the Mummy, the Creature. Uh, that's five. We and missed. Invisible Man, and did you mention Bride? Did not. Invisible Man, Bride, uh, Jekyll and Hyde, or are they not part of Universal? That, I believe, is not part of Universal. Okay. I couldn't, yeah, or they, a I, version of it is part of Universal. Like I, I think they had their own Jekyll and Hyde movie, but it's not the most famous one, if, if I'm okay, correct. Okay, because I know, so, yeah, well, and we're talking about the Claude Rains Jekyll and Hyde, um, which I would assume we were both cons- would agree would be the, the 
classic version because there was Wait, also- I think you're uh, – are you mixing that up with Claude Rains' version of um, Phantom of the Opera? Well, there's Claude Rains – you're right about that, Claude Rains' Phantom of the Opera, but then um, – was it? Oh, it wasn't. It Spencer wasn't. No, Tracy it wasn't did a version of uh, Jekyll and Hyde. Right, that was MGM, and that's not the classic one. The classic one, and you're right, it wasn't Claude Rains. Oh God, and I'm Frederick dancing. March. Frederick March, had a boy. There you go. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, that's the classic Jekyll and Hyde. Phantom yeah, of course, I not. think that that is not theirs. If okay. I'm correct. I, okay. You know what? I, I'm speaking out of school, not knowing what I'm talking about when I say it, but I. I um, I don't have anything in front of me I could check against, but I believe that's the case that, uh, you know, there's the two, well, there's three famous movies when it comes to that, John Barrymore's and then Frederick March and then Spencer Tracy. Right. And I think the Frederick March one is the one where you know that image yes. the most of his. So Yeah. Have you ever talked to, I mean, and, and certainly this is a new project for you, but like back in the day, I know Basil Gogos was always, you know, our signature universal monster artists doing all those great Forey Ackerman covers for famous monsters and, and certainly a million other publications after that as well. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, the thing is, you know, I, I certainly look at a lot of his work, but then I know when I uh, approach color uh, on doing these pieces, I'm intimidated by not knowing how far to take it or how little to take it. And so what I did is I've painted three, three of the paintings so far um, I did just full black and white, nothing but black and white, and my intention is still to go in and add color, but we're going to release a black and white version, which is what the piece truly is okay. right now, and then I will do some kind of color addition version that will have my hand-painted color, how I perceived augmenting it a little bit, but I want to be really restrained because I feel like, in a way, you look at Gogo stuff and you know, he goes for it. He just adds intense colors of all different kinds. And I don't know which approach is going to work for me. Understood. You know, until I really get in there. And I also want you to kind of not have it distract you either, because it might pull you out of a sense of connection to the original thing if those colors really uh, start to feel like a, a colorization of the film in a way. Not that Certainly. his paintings ever feel that way. His paintings don't. But. You know, he didn't necessarily do scenes, he did portraits. Right. And I'm doing, like, moments of story captured, cool. you know. So uh, each one of these things has the same kind of uh, staging in a way where you're the same distance from the figure, so the figures are all the same sort of full height or whatever in the compositions, and I put elements around them that are strictly from the stories that they were in in those movies. As the as the films went on, we did get crossovers of, you know, obviously, you know, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and uh, certainly the Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein film that had uh, all three of them together. Frankenstein, Dracula, you know, especially having the Lugosi Dracula. Uh, but of course, at that point, Glenn Strange was uh, Frankenstein. Do you have those kind of moments that if you're taking something from the original Frankenstein film, it's clearly Karloff. But if you are doing something where. Frankenstein might be fighting uh, a Bela Lugosi Dracula, that it might be Glenn Strange instead? Or, you know, well, I do of... have one illustration out of the whole print set is going to be a jam of all the monsters together, and I'm not creating that as a um, as just a lineup of characters. It's going to be like almost an action scene. I, in fact, I That's took my it. inspiration from a Neil Adams 
cover of Superman and Batman fighting a bunch of Martians. And so I thought, like, well, how about if these are the, the Universal Monsters kind of almost in the heat of battle, almost they're attacking people, you know, however I want to illustrate that. And so it's going to be, you know, it is Lugosi, it is Karloff, it is those primary actors as their key um you know, character types. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's important to me that, like, in a way, there was no other Dracula but Lugosi. There was no other Frankenstein monster except for Karloff. And everybody else that stood in their place was always trying to live up to it, which is what I wish that when they make these upcoming movies they're intending, I wish that we were at the point with computer graphics and CG that we could really... I just said the same thing twice, didn't I? Computer graphics is CG, and I didn't know. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I wish that we were at that point of really resuscitating those legends, bringing their likenesses back to life in an active form where we could actually bring new depictions out where maybe we reinterpret those films, but in a new fashion, but with those faces, because... I think there's something so essentially unique to the shape of Carlos' features, even for what he was like physically when he made that first film back in 1931. You know, like he was so skinny and that held, that, that contributed to the way the character looks so uniquely weird. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I mean, you could do it with almost a life cast uh, sculpture job of the actor's face put on as makeup for a modern actor, Certainly. maybe a guy who's actually eight feet tall, of which there's at least a couple, you know, and sure. bring that version of the monster to life in, in some kind of renewed glory. But it's almost like I don't want to see younger, you know, more attractive people playing these parts because, no, you're losing something. There is something so essential, so unique to each one of these men's faces who defined it for a generation. I completely agree, and I and I think, with the exception of the Hammer films that were their own thing, right. Um, you're right because nobody goes back to that De Niro Frankenstein, or, <laughs> or you know, or that Gary Oldman Dracula for that matter. And I appreciate they do stand it. the test of time very nicely too. It's a really yes. great quality that they have. Absolutely, no man, and you know, or you you know, and again, this is a different actor, but I appreciate those kind of interesting things like the the uh, Spanish version of Dracula that used the same sets and was shot yeah. like at night while they were shooting the Lugosi film during the day. Stuff like that you, that you hear about. But no, I agree. And you know, again, because of things like Forey Ackerman's magazine and some of these others, and people like Ogos that were you know giving us these covers, they are kind of iconic images. It's like, it's trying to recast Babe Ruth and not have Babe Ruth's face that, you know, just has outlived his own lifespan and you know, these are legends, and the, these legends have those faces in a way well, You that... also have to coordinate with the license holders, which is the estates. Yes. And that's the key thing that is always the bane of Universal's existence, I would imagine, <laughs> is that they have to try and make sure that, you know, Lugosi's estate is taken care of, and everybody's got different representation, and, you know, you have to make those deals happen because those are essential things. You need those faces. I completely agree, and I and I really I do hope, especially given what they've been able to do with the more recent Terminator movies, and you know, could show a younger Schwarzenegger uh, T T one model and stuff, or God, even in Batman and Superman, where Michael uh, and I'm blanking, but the guy who played General Zod wasn't in Batman Superman, but literally they made that giant 
kind of life-size uh, corpse. Right. Uh, exactly. And, and it, it clearly looked like the actor, and it was like, oh, my God. I, and, and to the point where I even am like, did they get him just to lie still and cut off, cuff his, cut off his fingertips? I'm very, I was very impressed with that. And it's, as you say, it was just, you know, movie makeup and magic and, you know, get, casting uh, the, uh, a life model uh, looking uh, thing that they could play with and everything. Pretty, pretty amazing what they can do. And hopefully they use it in the right way. And they do bite the bullet and make those deals with those estates. Cause you know, though, I, and also the fact that those guys got screwed for so many years, I think from a merchandising standpoint, I mean, you know, that those guys lived on for decades while all these, posters and cutouts were being made with their likeness and they weren't seeing a dime of it for so long yeah and now of course you know whatever can come will come to their their children or grandchildren and you know i think that's great because you know even if this is nothing about what they themselves as individuals did this is what those men would have wanted agreed you figure that they would have wanted the best of of what could have been given for their work to go to their children maybe they just like just like the Kirby's, the Kirby family getting exactly. a piece of the action finally. Of course, Absolutely. you should want that. You should want Jack Kirby's great grandchildren to be uh, as spoiled as anybody else's rich kid progeny. You know, I'm with you, man. No, I'm absolutely. I was going to make the same point. You're 100 percent right. And maybe Universal will take a page of uh, Disney and Marvel. And and do the right thing. Here's hoping. Well, no, they do. They do. Of course, they have to coordinate with them. It's yes. That it's it doesn't. You know, since these characters have this identification of being Universal's kind of magical thing, every time they rebuild it, they're going to try and look at well, who are the new hot actors we should sure. work with? And I think that's where you, you know, merchandising wise, they're still going to base it upon generally the stuff that we know and have grown up with. But when they're talking about creating new films. That's where the the specter looms of who's hot in Hollywood today. Understood. Well, we'll see, we'll see what they do. Now, in the meantime, with the time, if you don't mind, because I really wanted to talk about your other licensing thing that you're in the midst of, and that's uh, this licensing deal you have with the Beatles, uh, the Living Beatles, and of course the estates for for John and George. Uh, I, you know, I've I've seen the things that uh, you know uh, Sal put out. On, on Facebook, and uh, I am just blown away with uh, a lot of these images, starting with the Peter Max-influenced Yellow Submarine stuff you were doing last year, but really these portfolios you're doing this year, too. Really exciting stuff, man, and, and uh, I, I can't imagine the response. I'm, I'm sure that the, the Beatles community is very excited about what you're doing right now. I have no clue. Really? Did you go? <laughs> did, did, I, know that, I know that Sal was in Vegas um, and oh I yeah, thinking, I mean, I was there for the signing, and people were very complimentary. I have no idea what people say as a whole. I mean, is it reaching? In, I, I, you know, only when he tells me that, like, oh yeah, people love it, but he tells me that a lot of times. I don't know what to believe. Well, I'm telling so. you, and I'm a Beatles fan, and I love it. <laughs> Seriously, man, no, it's great. And I've even shown, I've got a couple buddies that they're not comic book people, but they're hardcore Beatle collecting uh, memorabilia people. They're aware of it, and they're very excited about what you're doing. And That's also, great. dude, this is great because. This is like, you know, we're in the midst of so many landmark Beatle moments and hitting those 50th anniversaries for a lot of this stuff. In right. fact, I was, I was telling Sal from a Chicago standpoint, um, August of 66 was the last time the Beatles as a band performed at the amphitheater in Chicago. Oh. And, and in fact, very significant moment uh, because it was when they kind of had to answer for John's quote, you know, we're bigger than Jesus. 
and there was that even that you know kind of icky period in in 66 because he said it that you know down south they were breaking records and burning albums and you know going on the radio there's all that great newsreel footage of you know burn your Beatle albums here and you know I think it was it was either Memphis or and I I'm reasonably certain I'm gonna stick with it, that it was Memphis coming up but the first uh, part of their American 66 tour was coming to Chicago. And guys who still work at the Tribune and Sun-Times were at that press conference and had to ask that first awkward question of, okay, are you, you know, you got a lot of heat for comparing the Beatles to Jesus. No, but isn't it true, though, this is one of the worst possible cases of somebody being taken so far completely out of context for what their statement actually Absolutely. was? Absolutely. Of course it was. I mean, his statement is so innocuous, innocuous and true for what he was saying about what popularity or what kids were getting into in that time period. He wasn't, as, as John himself said in his repudiation of this, you know, condemnation he was getting over, he said it wasn't about a statement of what he believed. It was just a statement of fact of how young people were responding to them, the kind of adoration and enthusiasm and, you know, to say that they were a bigger influence on young people, some young people's lives, and he meant it also specifically more for England than in America, you know, the fact that it was so twisted, or just that the specific words of, we're bigger than Jesus, was pulled out of context, was so wrong, and it's, well, we haven't grown any better as a nation. We're exactly the same group of people today that'll take oh, anything yeah. that a politician says out of context, and suddenly that specific combination of words is so thrown out there and repeated ad nauseum to condemn people. It's it, it's it's really heartbreaking that 50 years later, this isn't any better of a situation. Agreed. And in fact, I won't I won't bore our listeners, but I will I will probably pull you to a corner at some point Saturday and love to hear what your thoughts are on the on the presidential race, because I, <laughs> I, exactly. I know I'm talking to the artist who did that fantastic uh, Bush's Dracula biting the uh, Statue of Liberty's <laughs> neck. And also we did talk about this on a previous episode. You and Steve Darnell's uh, Uncle Sam. Uh, you know, two two prestige format books and stuff. Now that's great stuff, man. And I know you've got your views and and everything you said to describe how things were taken out of context with the Beatles. There's your uh, 2016 presidential election. Yeah, yeah, and only more to come this year. That's going to be ugly and unnecessary. So I look forward to whatever you've got cooking for a poster, uh, Alex. I don't know. <laughs> I can only imagine, and I I, I don't think my imagination will meet yours, because I certainly wasn't expecting the delightful Bush. (laughs) Well, you know, technically, I I should be always forthcoming with that one. Like, you know what? The concept, whereas I might have, maybe I improved upon it a little bit, but it was never mine. Oh, really? It was actually the Village Voice. When they reached out to me to do that piece, that was what they described to me, more or less. And I think that it's whatever way that the rendering is or the fact that, you know, it, well, whatever. It's, there's, a, there's a mild amount of restraint in it that I think maybe helps it to work. But, uh, you know, now it seems so naive. <laughs> <laughs> it seems so incredibly naive compared oh. to all that we can look at today. So, Absolutely. Are my you heavens, what, what a thing to get upset about then. Agreed. Are you still getting, um, like, you know, magazine work like that? Because, like, Tony Millionaire is a guy I talked to recently about how clearly with 
you know, the newspan, the newsstands slightly disappearing and there being less magazines out there and everything, you know, there's just less jobs like that. And I don't know if, you know, you still encounter those kinds of opportunities or not. No, no, no nothing generally ever comes my way that way. And in fact, I, I rarely these days get many jobs that come from outside of comics. I mean, the stuff that we're doing with the licensing of print stuff is still expanding that kind of collector market. And of course, getting into licenses that don't have anything to do with comics is a is an expansion of sorts. But as far as uh, the stuff for video games and uh, magazines, um, not a ton of that comes my way. A little thing now and again. That's the way it's always been. Just a little thing now here and there. Not a ton of it. Okay. Well, I remember too. Your Oscar poster was uh, was really great when you when you did that back a couple of years ago. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly, man, I mean, 14 years ago. That, that wow, was it that ago? long? Holy shit! Oh my oh, yeah. god. 2002. Yeah. God damn. Who knew? Unbelievable, yeah. man. All right. Well, that's okay. That's all right. No, but honestly, <laughs> the, the deals now with the Universal stuff and really the Beatles, I really hope this opens doors because, you know, um, it was very fitting that just a couple of years ago, and it wasn't 14 years ago, but it was a couple of years ago, that uh, you were at, um, oh, God, now I'm blanking, uh, the, the Rockwell, the Rockwell uh, Museum. Because really, man, you're, you, you channel that kind of uh, iconic presentation in your art. And, um, I mean, we're spoiled in the comic book world that we get your stuff as, as often as we do, and it always delivers. And really, it's, uh, like I said, taking those uh, non-comic fans into stores and pointing out your work in a regular bookstore or a comic book store. It's always great. It's like, you know, this is Alex Ross. And by the way, he lives in Wilmette. You know, they're like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> well, no, I actually, I don't, I don't live in Wilmette. All right, well, you're close enough. <laughs> <laughs> I used to live in Wilmette, but right, I don't enough. live there currently. <laughs> and you're in the Chicago, yeah, exactly. We don't want, we don't want uh, people showing up at somebody's door and, and that. You know, I, I, yeah, I, I'm very nearby, but no, I'm not in Wilmette anymore. <laughs> okay, leave that I haven't been there in 14 years. No, wait, is it? That? Yes, it's been that long. It's been 14 years. Oh, that's crazy, man. Okay. <laughs> well, and again, being from being originally from Wilmette myself, that was always a point of pride, and I'm usually pointing it out to others. In fact, I should mention from a news standpoint, speaking of Wilmette, Sinead O'Connor. Did you hear about that today? No. She was apparently she, – apparently she's been staying on the North Shore uh, regularly in Chicago, and she was around, and some uh, people can look it up on TMZ, but – um, she uh, she disappeared like from Sunday afternoon, and people really were kind of scared because she's kind of having some personal issues, and we're really kind of afraid that maybe she had killed herself or something. Thankfully, that isn't the case. But yeah, it was like all over the place. It's like, a, what is Sinead O'Connor doing in Walmart? <laughs> and B, kind of hope she's okay. So you know, yeah, it was really wow. Yeah, it was a crazy. Oh, I, I knew nothing about it. This is the first time I'm hearing it. So oh, there you go, man. No, I was well. You know, I my day job being at the radio station, I'm. I work at the Hancock, and I got only you would appreciate this. Walking to the Hancock inside and working, I feel like I'm walking in the Daily Planet every day. <laughs> no lie, man. I really do, and especially like we grew That's up. That's cool. So many, yeah, so many radio and TV stations were in the Hancock when we were little kids, and I'm like, you know, someday I'm going to work at a place like that. And now, you know, finally, uh, it's it's finally happened. It does. It cracks me up every day. I love that building, though. I mean, and also that yeah, great. Man restaurant up at the top there I, I that's a great experience to go there absolutely absolutely well dude this is a pleasure seriously congratulations thank on, you on the 20th for kingdom come thrilled with what's coming out from marvel and looking forward to more of that as as the months continue and uh, really the universal license deal and the beatles that uh, 
is opening doors, and I hope that uh, more will come for uh, for Alex Ross in the near future and in the distant future. Keep it up, man. Thank well you. done. Thank you, and I'll see you on Saturday, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, comics in Skokie all day. It's going to be uh, Alex and Mark Wade signing at uh, Kingdom Come, and I'm sure if you have some other Alex Ross to a, to a reasonable level. We don't want anybody showing up with a back of the truck or anything like that, or wheeling in a, a long box or something. Let's let's you know. But no, it'll be it'll be great to see you, and uh, thank you very much. And uh, really looking forward to seeing this signing happen. Thank you. Interesting insight as always from Alex Ross, and uh, really glad that he was able to spend the time with us today. Uh, I apologize for the uh, weird kind of uh, sound quality. Alex was on a phone line. I was on Skype. And, uh, you know, when, when Skype calls a regular, you know, phone line, it gets a little weird. So uh, that's kind of why it sounded the way that it did. But, you know, I mean, you could hear us. So uh, I'm, I'm cool with it. Hope you were, too. And uh, thanks a lot for listening to uh, today's Word Balloon. Uh, it was all brought to you by InStockTrades and InStockTrades.com, where really neat deals are happening now at InStockTrades. You can save on select Marvel Masterworks. Did you know that? Up to 50% off on uh, certain volumes. Also, uh, you could save on uh, PS Art Books up to 70% off. Uh, in addition to that, 45% on all Marvel and DC titles. Is that still going on? It sure looks like it is in in-stock trades. So uh, there's a couple reasons to uh, start shopping and looking for things. Uh, we mentioned Kingdom Come, and uh, uh, in-stock trades is uh, selling the trade paperback of Kingdom Come. And let me see if I can uh, find it here. There it is. Uh, the uh, trade paperback new edition of Kingdom Come is 45% off. It's uh, just $10.99. Um, you know, we, we did that whole thing on our last show about uh, in-stock trade deals on uh, Mark Wade books. Let's see what we get from uh, Alex Ross. You can get the Dynamite Art of Alex Ross hardcover, and uh, that book is uh, 30% off. It's just $27.99. You can get Project Superpowers from Dynamite, Volume 1. 30% off, that's uh, $13.99. There's the Star Wars Marvel Covers Collection, 45% off, and uh, that is uh, $19.24. I briefly mentioned in the interview the Uncle Sam story that Alex and Steve Darnell did together. Uh, the deluxe hardcover of that is 45% off, just $10.99. So uh, that's just the tip of the iceberg. You can get Justice. How about, remember that great story? Jim Kruger, Alex Ross, Doug Brathwaite. Uh, volume 3 of Justice is 45% off. It's just ten ninety nine. That's just a few of the Alex Ross uh, projects that you can find at uh, in-stock trades at a reasonable price. And, uh, you know, great deals are happening. So uh, check them out. There's uh, really cool stuff waiting for you uh, from Alex Ross and others at InStockTrades.com. And don't forget, if your orders are $50 or more, you receive free shipping. They make it easy. So uh, check it out today. John Sutcher saying thanks again for listening to Word Balloon. Thank you, League of Word Balloon listeners, once again. Uh, convention season is coming. It's just a couple weeks away. And uh, I haven't heard yet exactly what uh, got approved and what got denied at San Diego, but I will be there and uh, looking forward to uh, seeing people there. That's going to probably be my next convention stop. Um, in the meantime, I'm going to be really busy in Chicago. I'll tell you, the radio day job is killing me, and I'll be at uh, Alex and Mark's signing. I'll try and get some tape, uh, or, you know, it, it's tape. That's a, an acronym. <laughs> it's anachronistic at this point. But I'll get some uh, some audio uh, from uh, the signing, hopefully, on Saturday. 
Uh, but, uh, you know, neat stuff coming up on Word Balloon. Really great. More interviews. I mean, you know, this week was fantastic between uh, Maria Cabardo and, uh, and Alex and Mark. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm shrugging right now. What can I say? I'm, I'm very pleased with uh, what's been going on. Greg Pak joined us to talk about his Kickstarter. Um, you know, Susan Eisenberg, Wonder Woman from Justice League, was on last week. It's really been a great uh, couple months. And uh, there's more coming, man. I'm telling you, I still have stuff in the can that I'm waiting to get approved. And I'm also, uh, uh, and when I say the can, I, I don't mean the bathroom. I obviously mean, you know, in storage, waiting uh, for, for the green light so I can go ahead. Plus other people chopping at the bit to come on and talk about their stuff. Uh, really neat conversations, interesting books. And uh, we'll be talking to some authors that have written some comic history books that are worth your attention. So really, uh, just keep it tuned here to Word Balloon. And I promise to give you the, uh, the best conversations we can each week. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2016.